Hey, Double Shifters, we're going to get pretty real in this episode about depression and mental health. Just a heads up. Thanks for listening. Hi, Angela. Hi, Catherine. So do you remember a conversation we had back in 2020 when I asked you at the start of our phone call if you'd cried today? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I think that was also your standard uh, opener for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I remember this conversation that you're talking about. Um, it was in the fall. And I said, not today. And I added, um, thank you, Lexapro. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember I wasn't expecting you to say that, and then I was immediately really glad you did because it opened up this conversation between us because then I immediately shared that I was taking Prozac. Yeah, totally. It was almost like you were excited to tell me this after I told you about my Lexapro. Yeah, I was um, like, yeah, let's talk about our meds. <laughs> yeah, and it felt like, you know, there's we work together all the time, but it was kind of like this moment where something like cracked and opened up, yeah. and I was like, oh, okay, now we're like really going to talk about some stuff. This is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood in America. And I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I am your co-host, Angela Garbez. So that conversation about our meds was a really important one between us. And we're going to talk about our experiences even more today. And I just want to be clear that this episode... Angela and I, we're going to be sharing our own mental health challenges before and during the pandemic. And while they might resonate with you, we're not here to recommend any particular path forward for anyone. Right. We're going to share our experiences with diagnoses, medications for the sake of transparency and honesty. But this episode is not meant to be a substitute for mental health advice from professionals. Definitely. So, if you are having mental health struggles or you're feeling like you need some more personal support, please reach out to a licensed mental health professional. We have some resources in the show notes. So this episode is about our personal experiences, but I see talking about mental health openly as connecting to much larger issues of gender equity and liberation for mothers, honestly. I totally agree. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I think who has access to mental health resources is deeply political. I mean, there's yes. so much that goes into who has access. And, like, mm -hmm. why is it not just a standard part of healthcare that's available to everyone? I'm saying. I know. We have to just really acknowledge that we cannot be fulfilled and or even functional sometimes as professionals, workers, parents, friends, spouses, et cetera, et cetera, if we aren't addressing our mental health needs. Right. I mean, mental health, it just underlies everything, like what you were saying about being able to function. Yeah. We can't really take care of other people, let alone change the world or think about changing the world if we are not personally okay. And that's why I think it's so important to talk about this stuff openly. And of course, these issues are about way more than just our personal experiences. And that's why in two weeks, we will talk to a mental health provider, a clinical psychologist, Dr. Amber Thornton, about how moms have really been through it this year. Yep. She is an actual professional. Real doctor. And she'll share some really helpful insights and ways to think about healing from this traumatic year. 
It is a really great conversation. We can't wait for you to hear that too. Okay, Catherine, I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's do this. So, Catherine, I know the pandemic has been really hard for you, as it has been for so many people, especially moms. Yes. And everyone has their own unique set of circumstances and the specifics of their pain. Yes. Uh, But having newborn twins at the start of the pandemic, that is a, like, really special scenario (laughs) (laughs) that I think is just objectively hard. Yes. Tell me more about that. I mean... I feel like as it was happening and realizing the severity and depth of the pandemic, which really sunk in when our twins were one month old, it was a sense of unreality. Like, I am living in some sort of dystopian novel or something. Like, how is this global thing happening at this moment of such intense personal vulnerability and when our needs as a family, like, have never been higher. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm, And, like, for me, what was so hard about that time was just the avalanche of caregiving. It just felt like, especially for whatever subset of people who have experienced newborn twins, it is really grueling in terms of the constantness of the need. And then when, you know, my older son's school closed, it was like heart-stopping in terms of what it felt like we were faced with every day. Um, It just felt really overwhelming. And things were really scary. The world was a really dark, scary place where we felt like we had no idea how things were going to unfold. And I was definitely started to feel a lot of feelings of hopelessness, of just like, this seems so hopeless and there feels like there's nothing to look forward to. And from an honest assessment of the situation, like April, May of the pandemic, that is maybe a a rational, real reaction to like— Yes, I wouldn't say maybe. Yeah. I think that's a (laughs) rational, valid reaction. reaction. Of like, wow. And it was very hard to sort of separate whether that was a mental health issue or that was just like my ability to have a rational understanding of what the world was. So I think that that— that was, like, from a mental health perspective, what was really hard about the spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, like, is it an appropriate, a totally appropriate reaction, or is it a mental health issue, or is it both? Right, <laughs> right. Um, I'm wondering, was there, like, a moment when you realized that there might be something else going on, you know, other than just reality and difficulty? Yes. So I think that, well, there was a lot of moments, and then there was also some clear moments. Like, it felt like there was very much of a slow build of difficulties. Like, and I started to notice that I was crying alone a lot. Like, Mm. if I was alone, I would be crying a lot. (laughs) 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 Um, And I definitely had a lot of feelings that my emotions were out of control, like that my emotional reactions to situations were not, didn't match. You know, they felt like really wild reactions to whatever the scenario Uh was. And I was definitely going to very dark places thinking everyone would be better off without me. Like these very sort of like, it just like felt like a very heavy cloud over how I viewed the entire world. 
Uh-huh. And I think that what sort of started to be a giveaway for me that something might be wrong other than the world really fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. And it felt like something might be like sort of chemically going on in my brain. Yeah. Was how I was feeling reminded me of some of the hormonal roller coasters like I had had previously. Like, for example, I went through a big, not a depression phase, but really big hormonal roller coaster when I weaned my older son. I also went on a really dramatic hormonal roller coaster after the miscarriage I had between my older son and the twins. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of a clue for me just about sort of previous experiences that there might be something else going on other than just you have baby twins in a pandemic. So when you were feeling like there's something else going on here, <laughs> like wondering what it is, how to name it, like, did you have like some kind of background knowledge and experience that made it possible? Like you said to me, I think you were like, I basically diagnosed myself with postpartum depression. And I wondered, like, I feel like you kind of have to have some kind of experience there for you to say this is depression. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because, like, I've been reporting and storytelling around mothers and, you know, these issues since 2017. So issues around postpartum depression have definitely been on my radar. I've attended, like, maternal health conferences. So it's definitely something I was very aware of. I knew how common it was. I've heard a lot of stories about it. And also another something else that was, like, extremely helpful to me was that before the twins were born, a really good friend of mine is also a twin mom and is also a doctor. And she mentioned to me multiple times that people who have twins have a much, much, much higher rate of postpartum depression than people who have singletons. And they don't know why. There's mm-hmm. not, like, as, as as you know, Angela, you wrote an entire book about how there's not enough research on this. But basically, people with twins are, like, 43% more likely to have postpartum depression. And 43%. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's not slight. I mean, that's huge. Huge, huge. And so yeah. because of my own research, because I had this, like, really strong warning from a loving friend that this could happen— mm-hmm. So I I started turning to Dr. Google and thinking, like, you know, do I—let me just see if I have some of the signs. And it was really interesting because this was May of 2020, and I was, like, finding these articles on postpartum depression. And most of them are, like, you know, the first line of defense for postpartum depression is get together with a bunch of your friends. (laughs) Like, Uh like join a mommy (laughs) and me music class so you can, like, have Uh. some good social structure. Get a babysitter So with a date night with your partner. Like, it was just, like, this list of things that we were like, wow, that is part of a world that no longer exists. Yeah, and I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think – this article wasn't suggesting that postpartum depression can be, like, treated with a date night. But it was saying that a lot of times people feel isolated and being a new mom is hard. Like, try these things mm-hmm. first and see if that helps with your yeah. mood. Meanwhile, and, you're like, Google, I – I'm defenseless. Yeah, you're like, society's <laughs> ended, but thank you for suggesting a night out at a restaurant. But also, you know, they said, like, basically, if these things don't work, you know, definitely seek out professional evaluation and help. So I actually did have sort of like a the Mother's Day 2020 will definitely go down in history as like one of the low points. It was, I don't, I'm not going to go into all of the details of the story, but there was moments of me, like, laying on the kitchen floor crying. So I basically, <laughs> it was not a good day. And that made yeah. me realize, like, I needed help, that it, that this was not just, like, the pandemic sucks. 
So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We're building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. So Catherine, in the spring of 2020, you realized you needed help. What did you do? So... I tried talk therapy. I started with some talk therapy and quickly realized in consultation with my therapist that that wasn't going to be enough in terms of what I needed. So I got a hold of my primary care physician. And to my surprise, she actually said I didn't need to go to a psychiatrist. Like she could evaluate and prescribe for postpartum depression. And so after discussing the options with her, she prescribed me Prozac which was only $8 a month with insurance. So, of course, this doesn't count, you know, costs of co-pays for doctor's visits and stuff. And, like, I have full health insurance, so obviously mm-hmm. not everyone has that. But it ended up being a very affordable, for me, 
process. And it was actually very easy to access. And even during like the pandemic spring, which um, I'm just very grateful that it was relatively easy and smooth. And I know that unfortunately, that's not the case for many people. Yeah, I'm really glad that it was an easy experience for you. I I feel like so many, so many interactions with the healthcare system um, don't go that way. So yeah, and I do sometimes feel like it's good to share like that maybe it can be smooth for people because sometimes I think the idea that it's going to be hard can stop people from even seeking help. So totally. my experience definitely was was pretty easy. And I started taking the Prozac. It started working for me within a few weeks. And I would I would basically just describe it as like taking out the highs and lows. Mm-hmm. And so again, I'm not a doctor. But my understanding is that postpartum depression treatment can actually be shorter for some people. And so when I initially met with the doctor, she thought I would likely need medication for six months to a year. And again, this is like the personal medical advice I received. This isn't like a universal treatment plan. And Mm -hmm. so I ended up tapering off that medication about eight months after I started taking it, after consulting her. And I was on a pretty low dose, and I definitely noticed some differences in my mood after I stopped taking the antidepressants, but it wasn't like a dramatic change once I stopped taking it. So do you feel like for you that means you are no longer suffering from postpartum depression? I definitely don't think I have postpartum depression anymore. And I think that the things that are hard in my life right now, they're still hard. I mean— there's all sorts of things that are still hard in my life, like right. all the children I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> the like, wa- the just roller coaster of the public school reopening, the yeah. stresses I have felt about running the double shift, conflicts with partner or family member. You know, that's all. You know, life. Life. That's just life. But mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm in a sort of place that. It's not, I mean, plenty of it sucks, but I'm not in the place where I feel like I'm not able to cope in a way that is not manageable for me in term, and, not, mm-hmm. and not be on medication. I mean, life is still hard, but I definitely cry more than I did when I was on the Prozac, but <laughs> that's probably more of who I am, I guess. I don't know. But crying is, I mean, that's like the release, yeah. right? Like yeah. to let that out. Yeah. Yeah. So... I def- I mean, things are definitely can be hard. And actually, you know, working on our episode with Andrea Landry that came out a couple of weeks ago, I hope listeners will definitely listen to that. I mean, that episode kind of fucked me up because, oh. uh, I mean, maybe in a good way, but like listening to the interview about like how hard it is on us to not process our emotions made me realize that yeah. there may be a lot that I'm not processing. Huh. She did say something like, "You, if you keep your emotions in, it will literally make you sick. Yeah. Right. And I remember like, her saying something like that. Yeah, big feelings have to, like, find a way of coming out. And I definitely, yeah. listening to her over and over and oh. over again. <laughs> it's almost like too much truth in yeah. my ear. Right? Like, there were times, so, like, I like to listen to episodes and go on walks while I listen to them and, like, make notes. And then I was like, maybe I should just stop and sit on this rock and cry because that's, like, <laughs> what Andrea is teaching me. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, it definitely actually made me think, like, maybe I should – I haven't been in therapy regularly and maybe I should go back and just deal with more life stuff, not sort of, like, I'm in a mental health crisis. Right. You know, but – Like, I think anyone coming out of this pandemic has stuff to deal with, basically. Yeah. 
For sure. Yeah. Okay, so Angela. Yes. You told me that you sought out mental health help for the first time when you were about 40 years old. Yes. So as someone who has done therapy on and off since I was a teenager, I was a little surprised, (laughs) honestly. Was everything in your life really great until you turned 40? Or like, tell me a little (laughs) bit about, tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I was so blessed that nothing was bad in my life until um, age 40. No, um, it's really interesting to hear the perspective of someone who went to therapy as a teenager. You know, I definitely know that I could have benefited from therapy, probably like definitely in my 20s. But I just had a very different experience growing up. I mean, my parents are immigrants from the Philippines. And it's just the way I was raised. I was actively taught to hide my feelings. <laughs> um, there's this like 80s song that my mom used to sing to me. Um, if you'll indulge me, I guess I'll sing it to you because yes. I can still recall it immediately. And it goes, don't cry out loud. I know this Just song. Just keep yes. it inside. Learn how to hide your feelings. Oh and, you know, God. it's like, it's what my mom knew. And like, that's what she taught. But like now I, it's like, it seems so fucked up to me. Oh, my God. Um, and, you know, I think even at a young age, I I was like, that's not totally, like, how I roll, but that's, like, what I was yes. told, right? And, you know, I know mental health issues run in my family. Wow. My mom's brother, who my Tito Efren, who passed away before I met him, he had schizophrenia. Mm. And I'm quite sure that my father has undiagnosed depression, Mm. but we just never talked about it. Like, this is just not, like, mental health therapy was just not something we did. And I'm using finger quotes. And I think this is true for, I can only talk about myself, but I think in general, this is true for a lot of Asian people and for Filipinos. Like, Mm. we just don't do that. Like, I think that if I had said Mm. to my parents, like, I'm depressed, they would be like, okay, well, like, Life is hard. Everyone's a little bit depressed sometimes. That's probably how it would have been handled. And I had a lot of, like, misunderstandings about people. Like, I just assumed, like, therapy, kind of like skiing and (laughs) golf and tennis are things that, like, white people did. Right. Like, white people had the money to do that, and that's what white people did. It wasn't something that we do. Right. So it was like, I didn't go until I was close to 40, and I really felt like it was at a place where I just had no idea what to do. Hmm. Um. Yeah, my first time in therapy was I was pregnant. The second time I was pregnant with Lagaya. And it was just like maybe six months before my book was coming out. And I felt totally like unstable. Like I felt like I knew I had this sense that a lot of things in my life were going to change. Mm -hmm. And normally I'm someone who's like, change, bring it on. Like this is the point of life. Um, I love Octavia Butler, this writer, and she wrote that God is change, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, yes, God is change. But except that I was like, change right now scares me so much. And I felt totally terrified and totally overwhelmed. And I was just like, I don't, I need someone to help me. So did talk therapy and connecting with a therapist, did that work well for you? What was your experience with it? I mean, I was like a baby going to therapist for the first, (laughs) you know, I didn't know what to expect. Like a therapy baby. I like that. Yeah, I was like a therapy baby. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And to be honest, it like, I had a very kind and wonderful therapist, but it took me so long 
you trust her. Hmm. I was like, why am I telling this woman everything? Wow. Like, what? There's no, I don't know her in any way. Like, she doesn't tell me anything about herself. Like, <laughs> how am I supposed to just trust this person, right? So, um, but, you know, it was a process, yeah. right? And she was very open with me about how, like, therapy is relationship building. Yeah. I, I understand why you might not trust me, right? But you're here and in this process. And, you know, I wanted to continue. I was with her for, like, close to a year. But the thing is, at the time that I started, I... Both my husband and I were like contract workers, self-employed. Mm. So we didn't, we were buying our own health insurance and we didn't really have mental health coverage. And so I found her through this organization that provided um, therapy at a sliding scale at really affordable rates. And she was someone who was doing her externship, like her final stages of training. So at the end of a year, she was like, I'm going into private practice, right. which was great for her. But I was like, well, now I can't afford you. (laughs) You know, so I would have loved to have kept going, but I just couldn't. And, you know, so then I wasn't in therapy for two years. And looking back, I'm like, I really could have used it. I really could have used it during that time. Mm -hmm. And so I think the point of like accessibility of mental health services is not, it's very important to me. I can see now like, um, you know, I was lucky to be able to get it at an affordable rate and then it, it went away. So, Angela, you told me that when you eventually were able to get, you know, good health insurance, you went back to therapy, and this happened right before the pandemic. Yes. Like, what a great coincidence. <laughs> like, <laughs> thank fucking God I started then. I've definitely heard stories from friends about people having trouble starting therapy during the pandemic because, well, pandemic. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I started in February 2020. And continued during the pandemic through telehealth. But I remember my first therapy session with this new provider. She was like, tell me about, like, who you are and, like, tell me what you're good at, something that you, you know, like about yourself. And it took me, like, sitting there for 20 or 30 seconds to think of something. And that was, you know, indicative of some issues that I was having. (laughs) And so what the pandemic did actually was I just was, like, you know, this is the phrase that we say in my house is like, there is just so much us, right? Like, oh it's just God. unavoidable. Yes. And there is just so much me. Yeah. And I couldn't get away from this self-reflection. And that was something that I was, like, actively avoiding for the last two years. And partly that's because I had a new baby. Right. So it was really easy to be, like, focused on everybody else in my family. Right. And then I had, like, published a book, and I was promoting it, and I was just really focused on, like, the outward-facing Angela, who was, like, an author. And I just kind of lost—I had lost track of myself. Mm. You know, like, I couldn't tell her who I was outside of a partner or a mother or a writer. I had lost sight of myself, and I felt like I was just sort of, like, living for other people's ideas of me. But because in the pandemic, kind of a lot of that was stripped away. Right. Um— I kind of had to just, like, see myself, and there was no avoiding myself. And I had to, like, prioritize myself um, in a way. Or I started doing that in a way that was also really painful. But all of this is, like, super ironic to me because I published a book that was all about how, you know, the mother is never any less important than her children. Right. And it was really hard to admit, like, 
fuck, like, do as I say, not as I do, because right. I I wasn't doing that. And then I felt, you know, fraudulent in my work, but that's maybe neither here nor there. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's some kernel here, too, of that sometimes the what we choose for work and the messages we focus on for work are the things that we need to focus on the most for ourselves, you know? So. Ooh. All right. We're just going to be straight talk express here. <laughs> Was that too much? I mean, that's just like my. No, I feel no, like... I think you're right. You're so right. It's just so. It's so true. Yeah, I mean, I feel like so many things that we've gone into in the double shift. All of our talk about money is like, yeah, Catherine, let's reckon with this in your own life, you know, or yeah. do literal entire seasons of a podcast about the importance of community and then be afraid to ask for help yourself. Like, mm. you know what I mean? It's yeah. all like these like things are just so important and like. Yeah, practicing what you preach in that way can be so hard, you know, I, it, and so complicated. But, well, so, you know, sounds like what you were experiencing during the pandemic, all of the realities of being together all the time, all of the external stuff stripped away, and you're just sort of looking at yourself, like, was there a turning point in the pandemic when you realized, like, therapy alone it wasn't enough in terms of, like, helping you sort of be in a in a place that you were happy with mentally, emotionally? Yeah. I mean, when I first, you know, when I met for the first time with my new therapist, she, you know, gave me evaluations, right? And basically, you know, I knew that I was dealing with some level of depression and anxiety. Um, and we didn't really talk beyond that of like how to treat it. It was just let's let's talk and let's let's work on this. Yeah. But I mean, there was like an absolute red flag moment for me, which was in the fall, in October, what had happened was I had, you know, pushed my, we've talked about this several times, like I had pushed my deadline back and into the fall. And I was basically supposed to turn something in in like a month and I didn't have anything. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I, I scheduled a phone call with my editor and who is my editor for my last book. And I just told her really honestly, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this and this is why and I need more time. And she was amazing. She was completely understanding. She said, you know, I've joked with my husband about how I probably just need to quit my job because I can't do it either. So we're going to figure this out together. And we agreed to move my deadline back to July, which was like a full year after what we had talked about. And, you know, my editor and I, I felt like it was a really good conversation for our relationship. And it was also about as good. I had a lot of stress going into it, wondering mm -hmm. what was going to happen. It was about as good a, as a conversation as I could have hoped for. It was actually right. better. So I hung up the phone with her and I felt great. And I felt so relieved. And that feeling lasted like maybe an hour. Ugh. And the first thing that entered my head was, I'm going to fail at this too. There's no way I'm going to be able to meet my deadline. And that was like, that was my moment. That was like the moment of like, not to compare, but it's kind of like when you were lying on the floor crying. Yeah. I was like, what? What is happening? Like, why can't I was trying so hard to feel happy about this, right? And I couldn't. I was just made it just made me feel terrible, right? And that's when I was like, I I told my therapist that, right? And I was like, this is this is where I'm at, and I'm I'm worried, right? And she was like, let's do another evaluation, and we found that things had not gotten better. In fact, they had gotten worse, right. and that's when she was like, have you considered going on medication? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I think that that the idea of something actually sort of good and productive happening and then the tough feelings and the stories that we tell about ourselves like rushing in so quickly, I think that that is really a really powerful, as you put it, red flag about 
how difficult the experience of depression and how powerful these feelings and thoughts can be. That they, like, kind yeah. of overcome—they kind of overrun reality. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they're just—yeah. Yeah, it's like a total system override. Right. I literally, like, I felt like I couldn't feel any way but terrible. Right. Wow. As much as I wanted to not. Right. I couldn't stop it from happening. And then I was just, like, spiraling on how bad things were going to be. Oof. So sounds like you and your therapist came to this place that it was time to start medication. Did that did that feel like a big deal for you, or did you feel conflicted about starting it? Yeah, no. Um, I felt like I've never been on medication in my life. I had never really considered it. And she said it, and I was just like, yep, ready. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think, you know, also for me, I was like, it doesn't— the way it started, like, she, my therapist, does not prescribe medication, but she referred me to— Another therapist who does, who's like my medication manager. And I was like, well, it's just going to start with this. I'm going to talk to this person and yeah. see, you know, what happens. And the woman who I love, who is my, who I also, I talk to her once a month just to check in on how things are going with the medication. She listened to like, you know, everything I said. And she was like, yeah, we're going to put you, I, my suggestion would be to put you on Lexapro. She's like, which is, she's like, and I'm going to put you on, you know, it's not a huge amount. She's like, and it's a very benign drug. She's like, I've been doing this for like 20 years and it works. And I just was like, okay, great. It was a pretty, I, I was just ready. I think I was just really ready. Yeah. Yeah. And so what kind of difference did it make for you? Like, what was your experience once you went on Lexapro? In the first week, I Slept a lot. And then after that, I just felt a little bit like it wasn't anything dramatic. I felt this kind of spaciousness is the best way that I would describe it. I felt like I had space instead of immediately feeling bad about everything. I had the space to just pause and be like, huh, maybe there's like some other way I could feel. Hmm about it. Like, that was the thing that opened up. And that was like in the first couple of weeks. And so I think that now... I feel like it sort of brought me back to myself. Yes. Um, like, I thought for a while thought myself was the person who was really bad at everything and mm. felt really bad all the time. And now I, I don't. I just feel more like myself, and it feels really good. Like, I feel like I have ideas, and I trust them. I don't immediately think I won't be able to do it, or that's too hard to do. Right. Um, or it's a bad idea. Or, like, why would anyone want to listen to me? You know, I don't blame myself for things. Like... You know, I think also, like, my depression kept me in, like, this loop on the moment that I was stuck in. Mm. Um, and now I feel like, again, that spaciousness where I'm like, I'm in this moment, but this is going to pass. And, like, I can even feel like I can look to the future and mm. feel even a little bit hopeful, which was really hard for me to do before. And I mean, I remember my husband told me, like, within two weeks, he was like, the thing that I've noticed about you, he's like, you just smile a lot more. Wow. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I mean, that just makes me want to cry. He was like, I, you just smile at, like, anything now, and you smile with our girls, like, a lot more, and you definitely weren't doing that for a long time. He's like, wow. I just feel like I haven't seen that part of you for a really long time. Wow. So, wow. yeah. That sounds like a really, <laughs> like, affirming but very sort of hard thing to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also because, like, I think of myself as, I'm a good hang. I'm fun. <laughs> like, and then when, like, the person who's, like, who most wants to hang out with me was, like, actually, it hasn't been that great to hang out with Oh, God. <laughs> but I really like where you're at now. <laughs> oh, welcome back. Wow. You know, that's a really, yeah, it is really powerful. 
This idea of medication and therapy helping you come back to yourself. Angela, that is just so powerful. And I definitely Mm. felt like the medication helped me with that too, to sort of be more myself. And I, I honestly feel like that would be my highest wish for healing, for mental health healing, um, and just something that I want all mothers who have gone through this totally shitty time to have. I mean, I think about this, if this last year in the pandemic, one of the things that I grieve is this feeling of like, being a whole person, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm really, really resigned to this role of caretaker. Mm -hmm. And I've lost some sense of these like multifaceted parts of myself. And I feel like I've lost confidence and trust in that. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of people have felt or what I've heard anyway. And the medication was certainly a big part of just, you know, like I'm, we can be changed by this, but the core of who we are is still um, really beautiful and really important. And to, to be able to touch that again and to inhabit that again. I agree. I wish that for everyone. concerns about your own mental health, please reach out to a mental health professional. We are also linking to additional resources in the show notes. Thanks for listening, Double Shift listeners. Next time, we'll be back with part two of this crucial conversation about mental health and moms with Dr. Amber Thornton. And we'll share some voice memos from you, our listeners, about your mental health in the past year. There seem to be these pandemic walls that I hit. And they come at different times. And every time I hit one, I think, oh, this is the hardest it has felt. And then I hit another one and it's harder. And for next week's members only episode, Angela and I will be talking more about our mental health and specifically around its impact on sex and intimacy. Yeah, uh, it turns out I have a lot to say about this topic. (laughs) And I think that, uh, you know, while meds are great, there are some real side effects that we need to be talking about. You are not going to want to miss this members-only episode. So don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. You will get episodes ad-free and weekly. The link is also in our show notes. It starts at $5 a month, but if you can afford $10 or $25 a month, we'll donate a membership to a Double Shift listener who loves the show and can't afford it right now. And as you know from listening to this very podcast, moms have been hit really hard financially by the pandemic, and we don't want to leave anyone out or have cost be a barrier for people to feel connected to this community. Thank you so much to our new members and our longtime loyal members. Yay! Thank you. (laughs) We are independently produced, and we can't make this show without your financial support. And if you haven't already, make sure you're following us on Instagram. We're having so many interesting conversations there, especially in stories. You can find us at The Double Shift. 
The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Catherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music is by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Schreppel. We're funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. <laughs>